Hi, I'm John Visklosky, and this is Not So True Crime. In every episode, I share with you a new piece of original short fiction. Like many of you out there listening, I grew up reading mystery stories. Everything from Agatha Christie and Dashiell Hammett to modern masters like George Pelicanos and Tana French. But there is perhaps no other series that is nearer and dearer to my heart than one of the very first, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Holmes is one of my very favorite characters in the history of detective fiction not only because of the original stories and books written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but because of all the amazing stories he's inspired in the years since. Far from diluting the power of the originals, these new titles have only added to Holmes's mythos, deepening and enriching our understanding of these century-old characters. And... While many might wonder whether it's even possible to put a new spin on a world and characters that have been chronicled so extensively by so many, such is the wonder of these characters that they're capable of near-endless adaptation without feeling stale or stayed. With that in mind, I'd like to add a few of my own threads to the rich tapestry that is the Holmes literary canon in a story I'm calling Postscript. Hopefully, it's a story that will not only appeal to those who have read the original stories, but also to the uninitiated, who may not be as familiar with the adventures of the famed detective and his loyal partner and chronicler, Dr. John Watson. Set in the immediate aftermath of Holmes's deadly confrontation with Professor James Moriarty, Postscript follows a weary Watson as he returns home to a grieving London. Hoping for a measure of peace in the aftermath of Holmes's death, Watson quickly discovers that while most in the city are in mourning for the great detective, there are those who remain suspicious of the circumstances of his demise. Is Holmes really gone, as all the evidence might suggest? Or is there another game at play, one that is far more? depraved. And now, without further delay, Postscript, written and read by John Visklosky. June 18th, 1891. Six weeks after his celebrated friend, Sherlock Holmes, met his end, Dr. John Watson returned to London, stepping off the train at Charing Cross Station, stiff and more than a bit weary at the end of his long, uncomfortable journey. He had hoped to make it a quiet homecoming. He could do with a measure of rest and peace after these last tumultuous weeks and had cabled only a few of his associates to tell them of the hour and manner of his arrival. Yet, for all of Watson's idle hopes to pass through the station unobserved, he was met within moments by a uniformed police constable waiting near the edge of the platform. The constable was tall 
and heavy, with a face as round and smooth as a globe. Watson had to look up to address him. He was taller than the doctor by at least a head, taller than even Holmes had been. Pardon me, Dr. Watson, the constable said. Yes, Buckin, isn't it? That's right, sir, Buckin said, his face brightening at having been remembered. We met, sir, if you'll remember, a year ago in Croydon. You were there assisting Mr. Holmes with a case. There was a woman there, Miss Cushing, I believe, who'd received a parcel containing, well, human remains. Yes, Watson said. Two ears, as I remember it. A man and a woman's. He shook his head. Bit of grisly business, that? Indeed. The constable nodded sagely. I believe you called it the adventure of the cardboard box in your write-up in the Strand. Begging your pardon, sir, but I always did wonder. Why not simply call it the adventure of the severed ears? Seems more accurate, title. Bit more sensational as well. Yes, well, grumbled Watson. They hardly would have agreed to publish it with a name like that, would they? Oh, I suppose not, Buckin said. For a moment he stood, awkward and silent, shifting his weight from foot to foot. Well, what is it? Watson asked. I don't suppose you came all this way simply to reminisce about old cases? No, sir, Buckin said. Well, then, out with it, Watson pressed. Begging your pardon, sir, seeing as how you've only just stepped foot off the train, but I've been sent here by Detective Inspector Lestrade with strict orders to fetch you back to the yard. Watson sighed. The journey from Calais to Charing Cross Station had been long and tiring. The accommodations in his second-class carriage rather less than lavish. The last thing he wanted was to spend half his night answering Lestrade's incessant questions. The inspector had sent him several cables during his long stay in Switzerland, seeking to arrange a meeting upon Watson's return to England. To say that the inspector had seemed over-eager would have understated the thing. In truth, he had been positively manic, sending Watson dozens of letters. Yet not even Watson had expected to be ambushed upon the very moment of his arrival. I don't suppose there's any chance I'm to be permitted to go home first, he asked. If it helps, you may inform the inspector that I should be glad to speak with him in the morning. Once I have rested. Buchan looked down at the ground. I'm sorry, sir, he said. But the inspector was very insistent. He said I was to meet you at the station and bring you to Whitehall Place with all available haste. Watson looked back in the direction of the carriage, where a pair of porters was unloading his baggage. If you're worried about your things, Buckin said, I've already taken the liberty of hiring a boy to take them onto your own. They'll be there waiting for you after... 
After Lestrade is through with me, Watson muttered. Again, Buchan looked down. Watson knew he was being peevish, and that this poor, doltish constable was not to fault for his foul mood. But his journey from Switzerland had been long and somber, and now here he was, being summoned by Lestrade like some kind of errant schoolboy, hauled in before the headmaster. The whole business was maddening. Did the man have no sense of propriety? Very well. Lean on, he sighed. We don't want to keep the inspector waiting. Buchan nodded, looking relieved. Turning away from the still-steaming train, he led the way through the darkened station, directing Watson to a waiting cab. Through the open front of the clattering cab, the narrow streets of London were dark, lit only by the flicker of lamps, their small flames fairly swallowed by the thick curtains of smog. It was only a short way to Scotland Yard. Before long, they had pulled up outside the famed structure, the tall building a mess of windows and sharp Gothic twirls. Climbing down from the narrow cab, they hurried up a flight of steps into the main hall of the building. There, a group of uniformed men stood at a row of tall desks, examining the passports and letters of any who wished to enter. To a man, they wore black armbands in honor of the departed detective. Mounting the central flight of stairs, they made their way to the third floor, where they turned down a long hall, past a series of identical doors, arriving at last at Lestrade's office. The room, which had a view over the river, was normally quite spacious, with room enough for Lestrade and his secretary, as well as one or two guests. Yet on this night, upon entering, Watson found it cramped and airless, filled with a small assembly of men. Other than Lestrade himself, who was dressed in his customary suit and cravat, there were nine or ten other inspectors, all of them smoking and standing about, speaking in small, quiet clumps. Ah, Dr. Watson, Lestrade said, coming around from behind his desk and gripping him firmly by the hand. Thank you for agreeing to come and join in our little gathering. I've no doubt you'd rather be home, sharing a hot meal with Mrs. Watson. I do hope you weren't too put out to receive my summons. Not at all, Watson lied, taking the last available chair, which he presumed had been left open for him. As ever, I am happy to assist the Metropolitan Police in their inquiries. Very good, Lestrade said, retreating back behind his desk. Looking up, he saw Buchan, lingering just outside the door. Lestrade gave a gruff cough. Very good, Constable. That will be all. You can wait for the doctor outside. 
Buchan paused for a moment, disappointed, then touched his cap and shut the door. Now then, Lestrade said, reaching into a box at the edge of his desk and taking out a thin Indian cigar. I expect you'll be wondering why we've asked you here tonight. I assume it's because you wish to discuss Holmes's most recent... his final case. Indeed, Lestrade said. You see, Doctor, despite your fulsome account in the Strand, there are still a few details of this case that have left us all a bit concerned. Sitting across the scuffed desk, Watson frowned. Is that so? A voice spoke up from beside the window. Not concerned, Doctor, surely. It's really more a matter of confusion. Turning round in his seat, Watson quickly recognized the speaker. It was Inspector Bradstreet, a man with whom he and Holmes had dealt frequently. Confusion. Yes, Bradstreet said. The details of this case are very complicated. We just want a bit of clarification. He glanced over Watson's shoulder, giving Lestrade a sharp look. All right, Watson said, helping himself to one of Lestrade's cigars. As I've already said, I'm happy to offer whatever assistance I can though I can't think what I might be able to add that wasn't already in my account in the Strand. Oh, we wish, Lestrade said, handing him a box of matches. Is to hear your own recollections of this grisly business. Perhaps, in the retelling, the whole affair will become clearer. Very well, Watson said, if you believe it will be helpful. I do. Sitting back upon his chair, Watson took a puff of his cigar. I suppose the whole business began when Holmes turned up in my consulting room on the evening of April the 24th. You gentlemen will perhaps recall that up to that time, Holmes and I had not seen one another for several months. I was still in the early days of my marriage, and it was the attentions of my gentle wife which preoccupied most of my time. For his part, Holmes had recently been abroad. As I understand it, he was engaged by the French government on a matter of some importance. He appeared that night, quite unannounced, at the door of my medical practice. And what did he say? asked Inspector Bradstreet, when he turned up at your office that day that he was in mortal fear for his life. Bradstreet raised a dark brow. Why? Presumably because he had just been attacked outside my very door. According to Holmes, a brute with a bludgeon had been laying in wait outside my home, waiting for my friend to arrive. When he did, the man sat upon him, hoping to beat his skull in, Thankfully, Holmes was not inexperienced in the martial art of brawling. He was able to overcome the man and keep him sufficiently stunned until a constable could arrive and wrestle him into a pair of derbies. 
It was only after his would-be assassin had been revived and carried off that Holmes came striding through my door. Watson finished the tale with a flourish of his cigar. Did he say who this man was, or why he had attacked him? asked Lestrade. Yes, Watson nodded. According to Holmes, the man was a lackey, a member of a vast criminal organization. It seems that for a period of some months, beginning at the least on the 4th of January, Holmes had been engaged in a secretive and pressing stalemate with a cunning and cold-blooded enemy, a man named James Moriarty. He was, as Holmes relayed to me, a man of considerable brilliance. Publicly, Moriarty had served as a professor of mathematics at one of our smaller universities. Yet, beneath this veneer of respectability, crime had become his true stock-in-trade. Quite unnoticed by the authorities, he glanced pointedly at the assembled inspectors. He'd gathered round him a network of agents so vast and well-placed that he had come, in one way or another, to control much of London's criminal underworld. And how had this Moriarty come to enjoy such a lofty position? asked Lestrade. It hardly seems likely that his position as a professor would offer him much access to London's criminal classes. That I don't know, Watson said. On the matter of the precise makeup of Moriarty's organization, I fear that Holmes was rather less than clear. Rather odd, don't you think? Lestrade said gruffly. From his perch near the window, Bradstreet gave a cough, but Lestrade paid him no mind. And someone such as him, obsessed as he was with the most trifling of details, should make such vague representations when it came to the crimes of his most dangerous adversary. I suppose, Watson said, shifting slightly in his chair. Then again, Holmes was never one to share much in the way of specifics. I think he feared it might dilute the effectiveness of his methods were I to describe them in too much detail. He didn't want all of his hard-won techniques splashed across the pages of the Strand magazine, there for any criminal to read. What happened then? Bradstreet said, before Lestrade could interject again. Once Mr. Holmes had revealed the existence of Moriarty's criminal organization, he said that he had engaged with the police to execute the arrest of the entire gang. For this, he had retained the services of Inspector Patterson, as I understand it. He swiveled round and looked behind him at a short, bearded man. Standing in the darkened corner, fairly dwarfed by the men around him, Patterson nodded. He contacted me by post, claiming he had information on the most dangerous gang in all of London. He warned that we should not meet in person, but must instead conduct the entire business via wires. At Mr. Holmes's direction, we communicated using different telegraph offices scattered throughout the sea. 
I believe he was concerned that this Professor Moriarty fellow had paid off telegraph clerks to intercept and redirect messages of importance. Mr. Holmes seemed worried as well that his movements were being watched, a concern which I dismissed at the time, but which now seems to have been fairly proven. Indeed it does, agreed Watson. In any case, Holmes assured me that he had arranged with the police to have the whole of Moriarty's gang detained three days after he came to see me. Rightly fearing for his safety, Holmes endeavored to spend the next week traveling on the continent anonymously. He asked me to accompany him, a request to which I readily agreed. We arranged to meet the next day at Victoria Station, where we boarded a train bound for Paris. From there it was on to Brussels, and then Strasbourg. It was there that we received Inspector Patterson's cable, informing us that the entire gang had been detained, all save Moriarty himself, who'd managed to give your lot the slip. He gave Lestrade an accusing stare. Despite the failure to capture Moriarty, Holmes remained in high spirits as we made our way to Geneva, and from there on to the village of Marengen, where we resolved to make a brief stay before continuing on in our journey. Looking down at his smoldering cigar, Watson paused. How I wish now we had not chosen to stop. Perhaps if we had not. He broke off. Come now, Doctor, Bradstreet said. You cannot blame yourself for what has happened. What were the pair of you to do? Continue on to the deserts of Egypt? Yes, if that's what it would have taken. Had I known it would have saved him, I should gladly have gone round the world. There was an uncomfortable moment of silence as the inspectors stood, pressed together each of them studiously avoiding his gaze. It was Lestrade who broke the silence. Go on, he said. What was it that happened in Marengin? Watson gave a heavy sigh. Is not all of London by now aware of the particulars of that terrible day? Lestrade leaned forward in his chair. Come now, doctor, indulge me. Why else are we here but to have the tale from your own lips? Watson nodded wearily. Very well. It was on the afternoon of the 4th, the day after we had come to the Alps, that we set off from our lodging house. We had that morning resolved, on the advice of the house's owner, to cross the hills and spend the night in the nearby town of Rosenlau. On the way there, we stopped to observe the falls of Reichenbach. We had no sooner come to the falls when we were met by a young Swiss lad hurrying along the winding path. The boy had come carrying a letter, signed with the name of our landlord. Apparently, in our absence, an Englishwoman had arrived at the inn, where she had immediately taken ill. According to the landlord's message, 
The poor wretch was in the last stages of consumption. She was not thought to have long, a few hours at the most, but it would surely be a great comfort to her if she might be seen by an English doctor. I resolved at once to turn back and do what little I could to help the poor creature. He did not suspect, Lestrade said, that the letter was merely a ruse, designed to separate you from Mr. Holmes, leaving him alone and vulnerable. Of course I did, Watson said. How could any man not? Yet by that time we had been traveling for nearly ten days with hardly a hint of danger. Perhaps it was foolish and careless of me, or perhaps it was mere overconfidence in Holmes's abilities, but I had come to believe that whatever danger we had to fear, at the hands of James Moriarty, it would not be able to touch us there. Even should such danger appear, I had no doubt in Holmes's ability to outthink and outlast it, as he had on so many previous occasions. Always before there had been dangers, and always before he had survived them. How was I to think that this time should be any different? He looked about the room for confirmation, and was gratified to be met with many nods and general exclamations. Lestrade was still frowning and red-faced, and looked as if he might offer some further complaint when Bradstreet cut in. You made your way back to the hotel, then? Yes, Watson said. After some little debate, we agreed that I should return to the inn, unaccompanied. The boy would remain behind to serve as Holmes's guide. Their intent was to rest for some time at the falls before continuing on to Rosenlau. I was to meet him later that night, just as soon as I had seen to my new patient. I'm curious, doctor, Lestrade said. Did anyone but yourself and Mr. Holmes happen to catch sight of this young Swiss boy? No, Watson said. Inquiries were of course made in both Rosenlau and Marengen, but the boy was never found. It seems safe to now assume that the lad was one of Moriarty's followers. Doubtless he was, Bradstreet said. From behind his desk, Lestrade merely frowned. Perhaps, he said. It's difficult to speculate on the boy's provenance until we've found some living soul who is seen and may identify him. In any case, Doctor, you claim that, despite your premonitions of danger, you chose to leave Mr. Holmes behind. Yes, Watson said, biting back his indignation. That is precisely what I did. When I came to the hotel, the proprietor, a Mr. Styler, was standing out upon the porch, smoking a cigar. I inquired as to the condition of the patient, whether her symptoms had perhaps worsened. He looked at me with surprise and said that he knew of no such woman. Sitting upon the scuffed wooden chair, Watson shook his head. I confess, it was at that moment that my error became quite clear. I knew then that the message had been forged as a means of separating me and Holmes. 
the realization of what I had done, of the predicament in which I had landed my friend, fairly turned my heart to lead. I made my way back to the path, hurrying as fast as I could manage. By the time I came to the falls, there was no sign of Holmes. For a moment, he paused in his recollections, as if gathering himself. It was then that I began shouting his name, hoping against all I now suspected that I would hear mine in answer. But, of course, there was no answer, just the echoes of my own shouts. For a minute or two, I stood, helpless, the fate of my friend a mystery. Then, in thinking of the man himself, I was reminded of his methods. Long enough had I observed them, that I felt I might attempt to apply them. Mine was, of course, a poor impression. Even so, one did not need to be Holmes himself to tell of what had so lately happened. In the ground were two lines of steps, both leading to the path's edge, where the dirt was much disturbed. Holding tightly to a limb and leaning out over the abyss, I could catch no sight of Holmes, nor anyone else. It was then that I noticed, gleaming atop a nearby stone, Holmes's silver cigarette case. Beneath it lay a small square of papers, torn from the pages of his notebook, upon which he had scribbled a note. The letter was as clear and precise as the man himself. Very briefly it told the story of how he had come to the top of the falls, only to find Moriarty waiting for him. Out of courtesy, he had granted my friend a chance to jot down his final message, before commencing their murderous struggle. Or, as Holmes put it, the final discussion of those questions which lie between us. Watson laughed at the memory of it. How very much like him. To speak so mildly of something so petrifying. But that was his way, was it not? There came a chorus of smiles and nods as he looked about at the assembled inspectors. What else did this letter say? Lestrade asked impatiently. Merely that he was happy of the chance to rid London of such a despicable man. He also advised that he had made every disposition of his property prior to leaving England, and that he had left evidence of Moriarty's offenses in the care of Inspector Patterson. For a long moment, the room was silent. Tell me, Doctor, Lestrade said. Was the scene inspected by anyone other than yourself? It was, Watson said. Upon my return to Merengen, I engaged two members of the local constabulary to return with me to the falls and give their own assessment of things. Both men swiftly agreed that the scene had played out much as I suspected. Was any attempt made to recover the bodies? Watson huffed softly. No, and if you had seen the place yourself, 
you might well have known why. It is a cauldron of dark, swirling water, a grave like no other. Whatever was left of them after the fall was washed clean away by the current. He fell silent. Curious, isn't it? muttered Lestrade. What? Watson said. That Moriarty should have gone to all that fuss to track your movements across half of Europe, only to stand patiently by while Holmes composes and jots down a message, laying out precisely what has happened, and indeed, that which has not yet happened. I wonder, was Mr. Holmes a clairvoyant that he should so well see the future? Watson stiffened. He was no palm reader, nor soothsayer. He simply saw that which others could not. You yourself often accused him of possessing unnatural abilities, did you not? So I did, Lestrade said. Still, it seems rather convenient that you should leave behind such a message. Convenient for whom, exactly, Watson said. For you, Doctor, Lestrade said, seeing as how you're the one who found it. Watson took a last puff of his cigar, stubbing the end on the arm of his chair. Well, gentlemen, he said, drawing himself up, I believe I have answered all of your questions. What's more, I believe I have shown no small amount of patience in submitting to this long and tiresome interrogation. Leaning against the coal-blackened window, Inspector Bradstreet winced noticeably. Apologies, Doctor, he said. I assure you, it was not our intent to make this all feel like some kind of inquest. And what was your intent? Watson said. If I may be permitted a question of my own, Simply to hear your explanation of these most wretched events. You see, Doctor, Lestrade said, what Patterson there failed to mention is that of all the thugs we arrested as part of this operation, not one of them identified Mr. Moriarty as their employer. In fact, there wasn't one as even recognized the name. No, I suppose they wouldn't would they? Watson said. As Holmes himself led me to understand, such was the nature of Moriarty's organization that none within it, save for a select few, should be permitted any contact with him, or even allowed knowledge of his existence. That was, as Holmes put it, the genius and the wonder of the thing. Even so, Lestrade said, it doesn't strike you as odd that none of them should have heard his name. Of all the dozens of men we arrested, you'd think that at least one would have known him from a stranger. Watson sighed and lifted his arms in a weary gesture of surrender. I have given you gentlemen the only explanation I can conceive. If you cannot find enough proof to support it, I suggest you look harder or else concoct a different theory. As for myself, I have been too long for my wife. If you gentlemen will permit me. He walked to the door and drew it open. 
Of course, said Inspector Bradstreet. We would not wish to keep you further. Should we have any additional inquiries? I trust and hope you will not, said Watson. Yet, if you do, you gentlemen will know where to find me. With that, he turned and strode from the room, leaving the inspectors behind. Walking out from the rounded entryway, he spied the tall, prodigious frame of Constable Buchan standing below, wandering to and fro across the rain-slicked paving stones as a hansom waited nearby. Turning round, Buchan saw him. Very good, Doctor. All finished? I should hope so, Watson exclaimed. Though not if Lestrade has his way. I'm sorry? the constable said, with a look of near total confusion. Confound it all. Yes, we are finished, Watson said, not wishing to further confuse the issue. Right then, Buggan said. I've orders from the inspector to deliver you safely to your residence. Watson was quite certain he could make his own way home, but he was tired from his lengthy interview and didn't wish to argue further. Climbing up into the hansom, he turned round and gave the driver his address. It was not a long way to his quiet residence at number two Devonshire Place. He sat in silence as they rode, the streets dim and choked with smog, the great bulk of Constable Buchan jostling unpleasantly beside him. At last, the driver pulled to a stop before a tall, four-story townhouse that served as both his residence and his flourishing medical practice. Watson climbed wearily down from the cab, buttoning his dark, houndstooth jacket. Good evening to you, Doctor, Buchan said, leaning halfway out of the cab. I fear it is rather too late for that, Watson said, bounding up the shallow steps. Stepping in through the narrow entryway, he found the house dim and quiet. He stood for a time on the rug, a token of his Afghan service, purchased for a few coins in the shade of a dusty market stall, listening for any hint of his wife or the various members of his household. But the house was perfectly still. His wife, Mary, like the servants, had long since retired to bed. For a moment, he entertained the notion of going upstairs and rousing her, but the impulse faded quickly. Instead, he passed down the hall, emerging into the kitchen, where he was greeted by a most welcome sight. A plate of carrots and roasted herring, left by just for him. The whole meal was quite cold, and would have been prepared hours ago. Yet for all that, he ate it quickly, grateful for the nourishment. Leaving his dishes by the basin, he retreated to the comforting warmth of his study, where the flames upon his blackened hearth had dwindled down to chalky embers. He should have gone up to bed, 
had he not still been so agitated from his interview with the police, though truly it had been closer to an inquisition than the congenial meetings with which he was so familiar. It was all due to Lestrade, that mistrustful, dark-eyed clot. The man had been so enamored of Holmes, he could scarce accept the fact of his death. Yet he was indeed gone, as Watson knew better than anyone. He was still standing in his study, reflecting upon Lestrade, when he heard a soft knock upon the front door. Stepping back into the hall, he went to the door and drew it open. The man who stood upon the step was thin and grizzled, his eyes dark beneath the brim of his black Homburg hat. For all that he might have lacked in stature, he had the trim and vigorous appearance of a sportsman or a big-game hunter, of one who had spent many nights in the bush, waiting for a cape buffalo or a spotted leopard to go wandering past his camp. Looking up, the man nodded. Doctor, he muttered quietly. Watson said nothing in return, but drew the door wider, stepping aside to allow him in. He led the way back to his study, the dark-eyed visitor following closely. Apologies, doctor, for turning up on your doorstep like this. I know you instructed me never to come here, not unless it was some manner of emergency. So I did, Watson said, moving to stand next to the mantel. Yet here you stand upon my rug, and Sherlock Holmes not six weeks gone, and all in this city beyond those doors still in mourning for him. I must then presume that there has been some great cataclysm, for if not, only an incurable fool could be so careless as to turn up here. And you're no fool, are you, Colonel Moran? Standing next to a plush reading chair, Colonel Sebastian Moran shook his head. No, sir. Good, Watson said. Good. I should hate to have brought such a man into my confidence. So tell me, he said, gripping the poker and stoking the flames. What manner of calamity has brought you to my doorstep this evening? It's Mrs. McAdams, sir, Moran said. She came to me this morning at my offices in Wapping, in a right state. It seems the police raided two of her parlors yesterday. They broke up the premises, chased off the clientele, and arrested some twenty or thirty of her best girls. I see. Watson said quietly. I take it she received no warning of this raid from any of our informants within the police? No, sir, Moran said. If she had, you can be sure she'd have had both parlors emptied out and set right before they arrived. You know how she is. Yes, I do. She said she wanted to meet with you tonight. As soon as you had returned from your journey, said she wants to see what you plan to do to get back her girls and make an example of whichever bloody peeler it was that's let this raid go off without giving her some kind of warning. 
I tried to put her off, so truly I did. I know you could do with a bit of quiet. But you know how she is. She wouldn't hear any excuses. She threatened to close up all her other shops and lay in all the rest of her girls unless you could meet with her tonight and give her every last assurance that this won't be happening again. I see, Watson said softly. Far from what her name might suggest, Mrs. McAdams was not Scottish. Nor was she, in fact, a Mrs., having lost her husband to consumption some twenty years previous. In truth, she was a withered old matron who hailed from the distant shores of the Orient. Born in the Canton region of China, she had spent much of her early life enslaved as a courtesan on a floating brothel, one of the vast two-story hulks that drifted from dock to dock, enticing sailors and visiting merchants, any with a few spare coins. Stealing away one night, she had slipped aboard a British steamer, bound for the Royal Victoria Dock. Upon her landing, she had quickly secured a job as a stock girl in an oriental tea shop. Within several months, the shop's proprietor was found face down in the Thames, and his young clerk had taken charge of the place. From this felicitous start, Mrs. McAdams, who had, by this time, adopted a Gaelic surname in the hope of appearing more English, had used her knowledge of the carnal arts to transform the beggared shop into a thriving pleasure house. While she was publicly acknowledged as one of the wealthiest merchants in London, an importer of rare fabrics and spices, few were aware of her true trade, and none more so than Watson. For Mrs. McAdams not only controlled most of the opium dens in London, she was also his employee, one of his most trusted associates. She was, as Moran had said, not one to be put off. Very well, Watson said. Take me to my offices in Limehouse. I presume she's already there, waiting. Moran winced. With respect, sir, she refused to wait. You know how she can get when her blood is up like that. Indeed, Watson said. She promised to return by one, before the bell struck quarter past. Watson nodded, biting back a twinge of irritation. He found the one-sided terms of this meeting quite disagreeable. Even so, it wouldn't do to keep Mrs. McAdams waiting. If he left her to settle the matter herself, she would do away with half the yard before they managed to stop her, for that was the bloody-minded manner in which she dealt with such provocations. He followed Moran out to the street, where they climbed into a waiting broom, the colonel sitting next to him, the shades on either door drawn. Without a word from either of them, the carriage lurched and clattered off. It was nearly an hour's ride from his home to the suite of offices he had secured 
in the top floor of an old machine shop, the property purchased through a mercantile concern that did not actually exist beyond the papers upon which it had been incorporated. Sitting upon the padded bench, the two men did not speak. When at last the brougham came to a stop, Watson pushed open the door and sprang lightly down. The rig had stopped in a walled yard beside a large industrial hall, shut in on every side by walls, barbed with rails of iron spikes. Pushing through a nearby door, he stepped onto an abandoned factory floor. Striding to the furthest corner, he mounted a narrow set of stairs and made his way to the uppermost floor. Passing through a carpeted hall, they came into a warmly lit room with a pair of rounded casement windows that gave a view over the docks. Already the hearth had been built up, the logs crackling warmly upon the iron. A pot of hot Turkish coffee laid out on a tray beside a pale porcelain cup. I'll leave you to it, Moran said, backing from the room and bowing his head. Watson nodded. Please show Mrs. McAdams in as soon as she arrives. Very good, Moran said, pulling the door shut behind him. Walking to the silver tray, Watson poured himself a cup, taking a long, gratifying sniff before bringing the porcelain to his lips. He had not always favored the drink, which he knew was too treacly for most Englishmen. He had only acquired a taste for it in the years that he and Holmes had lodged together. It was one of the few subjects on which they had been firmly agreed. Though, to be fair, Holmes had exhibited few interests outside of his little mysteries, save perhaps for his intolerable habit of injecting himself with doses of cocaine and scraping away at his violin at all hours of the night and day. For as impressive as his mental faculties had been, they were confined to a startlingly narrow scope of studies. Seldom were the times he had expressed any interest in the matter of Watson's domestic existence. Fewer still the instances in which he had inquired as to the particulars of his military service. Perhaps if he had, the two should never have taken up as partners. Upon completing his military training, Watson had been dispatched to Kandahar and assigned a role as an assistant surgeon. There, he had stitched, bandaged, and mended a good many of his fellow countrymen. Yet for all that the notion of war had seemed invigorating, the reality was a good deal more tedious. It was not until the men of his regiment made their first foray into the mountains of the Helmand that Watson stumbled upon what was to become his true pursuit. It was there, while on a scouting expedition, that his party came across a vast field of crimson-colored poppies. The farmers there had been growing them for centuries, selling the resin to local physicians, who used it as a remedy for all manner of bodily pains. Watson already knew from the men in his regiment 
many of whom had previously been stationed in Bengal, of the great success of the opium trade. Yet it wasn't until he met Moran that an opportunity presented itself. The two men had crossed paths during the Battle of Char Asaib, when the wounded colonel had come staggering into the medical tent, where Watson had dutifully stitched a shallow wound to his lower leg. That night, over glasses of whiskey, the two young soldiers had learned something of the other. Moran, as it happened, was something of an impenitent gambler, who had spent a good portion of his service losing at the gaming tables in Kabul. After amassing a considerable debt he could never hope to repay on a mere colonel's wages, he had managed to satisfy the obligation by transporting crates of dried poppies hidden in amongst his regiment's provisions. With the help of Moran's contacts, Watson had developed a thriving venture, using the stores of his own regiment to transport the goods overland, to be sold in the markets and bazaars of Kabul. This venture had gone on in fine form for nearly a year, until Watson was himself injured, struck in the shoulder by a Jezail bullet that nearly severed his subclavian artery. It was as he lay in his sickbed at the base hospital in Peshawar, awaiting his removal to London, that he began to consider the notion of expanding into other, less crowded markets. With Moran remaining in Kandahar to manage local operations, Watson had returned to London to establish a means of shipping and sale. And then, of course, he had not been home a month when an old friend a colleague from Bart's had introduced him to Sherlock Holmes, who was, as fate would have it, seeking someone with whom to share lodgings. He had nearly finished with his coffee and was still reflecting upon the curious nature of fate, the ways in which small decisions could completely alter the course of a man's life, when there came a soft knock upon the door and Moran leaned halfway into the room. Sorry to disturb, sir. Mrs. McAdams is here. Watson frowned. He had not heard a carriage arrive. Then again, perhaps she had made the short trip in one of the hand-pulled rickshaws, of which she was so fond. Very good. Show her in. Moran nodded and retracted his head, shutting the door once again. After a moment, it reopened, and a short female form came bustling in. Mrs. McAdams, he said, walking around from behind his desk. Colonel Moran said that you wished to speak with me regarding some recent trouble with the authorities. Apologies, doctor, the woman said, speaking from the patch of deep shadows that lingered just beyond the lamps. Mrs. McAdams won't be joining us. I'm afraid it was I who requested this meeting. I do hope you'll forgive me the deceit. The moment Watson saw her face, he reached instinctively for his revolver. Ah, 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 the woman warned, with a light tisking of her tongue, holding up a pistol of her own. It was silver with a shortened barrel, the grip fitted with pieces of pearl. Your penchant for carrying a revolver is a matter of popular knowledge. 
Did you really think I wouldn't have come prepared? No, I suppose not, he said. Then I beg you, please don't force me to do anything drastic. The rugs in here are quite lovely. Persian, unless I miss my mark. He nodded. Exquisite. One of my favorites. It would be such a shame to ruin them with a dash of brains. She gestured with her pistol, suggestively. So it would, he said, pursing his lips tightly together. There's no use calling for Colonel Moran. After all, he is the one who let me in. So he is, Watson said. May I ask how you managed to secure his cooperation in this little bit of theater? Certainly, the woman said. Though there's not much to explain, I'm afraid. It seems that the colonel's gambling debts are a good deal worse than you've been made aware. Doubtless, he had hoped to win back enough to repay them. Not an impossible strategy, though certainly not likely, given his history. I fear his pursuit was made even more difficult after he was caught out for cheating by Mr. Ronald Adair. It is rather hard to find a fair game after being branded a swindler. I myself suffered a similar fate at a gaming den in Khartoum and was forced to flee the city for other, more lucrative regions. Fortunately for me, the parties to whom the colonel's debts are due are much fonder of me than they are of you. They all agreed to forgive his obligations in return for my promise to rid them of you. It would seem that more than a few of them are rather resentful of the rates you've been charging them for the benefit of your official connections. It appears that a lack of competition has made you rather careless. So it would, Watson said. Now, as for that revolver in your pocket, don't worry, I haven't forgotten. Do please take it out slowly and lay it there upon that sideboard. He drew the gun out slowly, placing it on the sideboard as she had asked. Wonderful, she said, motioning with her gun and waving him back. Walking over to the table, she scooped up the revolver with her free hand, sliding it into a hidden compartment in the bustle of her dress. Watching her, Watson wondered idly just how many weapons were hidden beneath the folds of her violet gown. Well, she said, now that you are sufficiently unmanned, perhaps you'd care to join me by the fire. The conversation will be so much more pleasant if we can see each other properly. It would be my great pleasure, Mrs. Norton. The woman smiled warmly. Actually, I'm afraid my engagement to Mr. Norton was called off. Or rather, I left him naked and tied to a bed in a hotel suite in Jordan, with a pair of his own knickers stuffed into his pretty little mouth. He was beginning to bore me, you see. Such a dry, humorless man, always so consumed with thoughts of business, not unlike your dear departed friend. But I won't bore you with my tales of domestic unrest. At any rate, I remain blessedly unattached. He nodded. Miss Adler, then. She smiled warmly at him. In the flesh. 
Across the room, Irene Adler made her way to the plush velvet divan, sitting carefully upon the edge, her gun still pointed squarely at his chest. He took a seat across from her, placing himself on the wide leather sofa. Now that we're comfortable, she said, I thought I might ask you a few questions. I assumed you might have a few. Indeed I do, my good doctor. I've learned much of it from Moran, but there are still a few nagging details. And I thought, since we have this time together, you might clear them up. Very well, he said. I presume you're wondering what exactly happened to him. There was no need to clarify who he meant. Yes, she said. I read your account in that sensational monthly. A wonderful little piece of writing, even if it was clearly absurd. There was hardly a single word of it that rang true, much like many of your other stories, if I'm to be honest. Oh, I'm sure it was clever enough to fool those clots at Scotland Yard, but honestly, for anyone with half a thought in their head, it really was a piece of drack. The most outrageous aspect of all this is how you thought it would fool anyone. There's many in this city who might disagree. Well, perhaps that's why you've been able to establish yourself in a position of such great influence over them. People don't want the truth, he said. Not most of them. They want to hear something comforting, even if it's just a lie. They'd rather believe that Holmes died protecting them all from some criminal mastermind. They don't want to hear that he died without a struggle, without so much as a whimper. Anyway, you're wrong. Not all of them fell for it. Lestrade seemed quite suspicious of many of the particulars of my story. Did he really? Adler said. Good for him. Perhaps you haven't been giving him enough credit in those stories of yours. Then again, I suppose he'd have to be a complete fool to believe any of what was in that last one. It all seemed a bit haphazard, even to a casual reader such as myself. Not up to your usual standards, if I might offer a critique. There wasn't even any sort of mystery, just two old men grappling in the mud. Quite far from the glorious end I would have wished for our old friend. I assume it was written with great haste, and that your decision to kill him was made at the last instant. Not exactly, he admitted. The trip had been planned for weeks, though we'd informed no one of our intentions. Holmes had other business on the continent, and we decided a brief holiday might do us both some good. It was only a few weeks before we left that I decided that it should be our final adventure together. For a moment, Adler paused, looking thoughtful. I suppose then that he had begun to suspect the true nature of your affairs. Yes, he had, Watson said, though he'd no idea they were my affairs. Four weeks before we left, Holmes told me he'd begun to uncover a vast network of criminal enterprises, hidden behind a veneer of legitimate businesses. He said they were engaged in all manner of activities, everything from the sale of opium to extortion, bribery, 
usury, and prostitution. At its center, he believed, was some unseen entity, some man directing it all, all for his own personal gain. He, of course, had no idea who that man was, but he assured me that, together, we would discover his identity. That was when I made the decision. That very moment, sitting across from him in his study, watching him smoke that thick tobacco of his. He had no idea what he just revealed to me, the fact that he just sealed his own fate. He was always rather stupidly convinced of my unending loyalty to him. Convinced unto the end, it seems, Adler said. So it would. I suppose then all you needed was a villain, somebody on whom to pin the murder. Hence, Moriarty. It does have a lovely ring to it. I wonder, where did you get the name? It was the name of one of the surgeons at the University of London, where I studied medicine. My, my, he must have been quite the imposing teacher. Actually, he was quite kind and patient. He had an impressive talent for diagnosing the ailments of his patients. And what of the men that you arranged for Inspector Patterson to arrest? Adler said. I'm guessing they didn't work for you. No, Watson said. Actually, they were my competitors. Criminal rivals. So you took the chance to rid yourself of Holmes and the competition, all in one fell stroke. He nodded. Well done, she said. Perhaps I've underestimated your talents. I wouldn't say that, Watson said. You are the one holding the gun. So I am. Adler smiled. Watson reached for his cup, taking a slow sip of coffee. I'm curious, Adler said, after he'd finished. Was any of what you wrote in the Strand actually true? Parts of it, Watson said. Mostly the bit about Holmes being dead. Adler blinked. He really is gone, then. Oh, yes, Watson said. No miraculous resurrection for the great detective, I'm afraid. I put a bullet in the back of his brain. Another in his heart, just to be sure. And then what? She said, gripping her pistol tighter. Sitting across from her on the couch, Watson shifted nervously. You threw his body into the river? No, he replied. Holmes never went over the falls. I buried the body in a hole in the woods, far from any path or river. The Swiss can search all they like. They'll never find Sherlock Holmes. Watson turned on his seat and stared into the hearth. Despite the warmth of the flames, his hands felt rather cold. I suppose you're wondering why I stuck with him for all those years. Actually, I thought that part was rather obvious. I presumed it was so you might keep a close watch over his many investigations. Make sure you'd be the first to know if ever he began to suspect you. Yes he said. Fortunately for me, 
Holmes was always rather consumed by his little mysteries. He was far more interested in the strange and unnatural than he was in what he called the common class of crime. He never had any patience for bribery or the trade in opium, not unless he was using it himself. Actually, that was how he stumbled upon the nature of my enterprise in the end. He was at one of Mrs. McAnam's opium dens, lying on a mat, half dead, when he happened to hear one of her lackeys speaking about a fee that was owed me. Damned bad luck, really. For you as well as him. Apparently. I presume your close proximity to him also gave you invaluable access to the inner workings of the Metropolitan Police. Indeed it did. Watson said. Through our frequent contacts with them, I came to possess a wealth of valuable information, such as which of them you might be able to bribe. It's amazing what a man will reveal if he believes fervently he's speaking to a friend. Many in the police owe debts that they are happy to see erased in exchange for certain official favors. I presume you had Colonel Moran make the entreaties on your behalf? Of course, Watson said. I couldn't well do it myself, not without them knowing who I really was. Adler laughed. It's a pity you're not a better judge of character when it comes to selecting your close associates. I fear it's a mistake you'll not have the chance to correct. Watson swallowed. Was it him who gave me away? Not at all, she said. The colonel only agreed to assist me after I approached him. Actually, it was someone far closer to you who started me on this whole escapade. Holmes, he said. My dear doctor, Adler said, shaking her darkly curled head. Even now, with the whole scheme laid bare, you're still so very blind. Maybe Holmes was always right. Maybe you truly are a dullard. Mary, he gasped, after a moment. Mary betrayed me? Indeed she did, Adler said. Though to be fair, at the time she had little idea of the extent of what she was revealing. I admit I contacted her in secret, while you and Holmes were off on one of your little adventures. After all, she had never met me and knew nothing of my history. I met her posing as the treasurer of a temperance organization. Certainly not a preferred alias, given my own affection for whiskey, but one which I suspected she was sure to find sympathetic. Your wife may be very pretty, but she lacks a certain appreciation of life's great vices. Anyway, I had hoped through her to determine the whereabouts of the great Agra treasure, more what little still remains of it. I soon realized upon speaking to her that that was a hopeless venture. But she did tell me something interesting of the comings and goings of her dear husband, John. Apparently, she'd begun to notice your frequent nocturnal absences from your home, and had endeavored one night to follow you when you left, huddling beneath a cloak on the seat of a hansom. Far from finding you in the arms of another woman, as she'd feared, she saw you disappear into a dockside tavern, 
some place called Mr. Chan's. In the end, she'd thought herself silly for ever suspecting you of infidelity. Well, I'd heard of this particular establishment, though I didn't tell her that. I knew that it was one of Mrs. McAdams' most popular opium dens. And, since I hardly thought you had the look of an opium addict, I knew there must be some other explanation for your presence there. From there, it was rather simple to unravel the threads of your hidden life. All it took was a bit of time and a knowledge of the city's darker circles. I'm afraid that many of your associates were all too eager to inform upon you. You've not made yourself many friends in your efforts to command the city's criminal element. A man cannot be both master and friend, he said. I suppose a man can't, but a woman, perhaps. That's it, then, he said. You mean to take over my position? Of course. I should have thought that was obvious. Sitting on the edge of the divan, Irene Adler smiled mischievously. I think it's high time someone of my skills was put in charge, don't you? Watson said nothing. Oh, come, she scolded him. There's no need to be so humorless about it all. What now, then? he said. Do you mean to shoot me? Of course not, she said, looking down at the revolver in her hand. This was just for show. It's not even loaded. See? She pulled open the cylinder, showing him the empty chambers. Guns are so impersonal, and they do leave such a dreadful mess. No, no, I quite prefer... What was it your friend called it? A woman's weapon? Watson looked down at his cup. The white of the porcelain stained dark with a small heap of black grounds. You see, doctor, Adler said, it isn't just for my own edification that I've kept you here talking. I also had to wait long enough for the toxin to take effect. The coffee did a masterful job of masking the taste. Watson dropped the cup, letting it roll across the rug. He lurched, trying to stand up and falling back against the couch. Reaching up, he tore at his collar, struggling to draw breath as the room began to dim. From out of the darkness, he saw Adler appear, bending down to inspect his face. Gelsemium elegans, she whispered. I believe you're already familiar with it. If I'm not mistaken, it was featured prominently in one of your own stories. Quite a potent toxin, similar in many respects to strychnine. It acts on the body's nervous system, paralyzing all the major organs. Eventually, the victim suffocates when their lungs stop drawing in air. Watson gasped, his chest burning. I am sorry for how frightening this must be, but I promise it will all be over soon. Though I have to admit, it is a pity there'll be no one left to write a story about all this. I rather think it should have made a compelling little yarn, 
don't you? Watson's body began to convulse, shaking with a sudden fit of spasms. Please understand, doctor, Adler said. I don't relish any of this, but I think it's an appropriate tribute to the memory of our old friend. For whatever you truly thought of him, he was a very clever man. He met an ugly end at your hands. I owed you the same. For a moment, he continued to shake, his long limbs twitching, fingers clenching. Then he lay still upon his back, his lips parted in a silent gasp. Irene Adler waited a full minute before calling Moran in. When he walked into the dim room, he took one look at the body of his former employer and stopped short. You want I should dispose of him then, he said. Not at all, she said. Have the driver take you back to his home. Make sure you are not seen. Place him in the study on the settee. Leave this next to the body, along with half a glass of whiskey. She handed him a small glass bottle, full of a coarse white powder. Even the dolts at Scotland Yard should be able to piece the story together. I'm afraid the good doctor was so distraught over the recent loss of his closest companion that, in his grief, he took his own life, using a poison from Holmes's own cupboard, leaving his dear young wife quite bereft and husbandless. Yes, Mum, Moran said, stepping out to collect the driver to help in bringing down the body. As soon as they had gone for good, and she was at last alone in the room, she stepped over to the sideboard and poured out a glass of bourbon. She took the drink and stood by the window, sipping it carefully, savoring the taste. She looked out over the docks, the ends obscured beneath thick clouds of smog. She was going to have to deal with Moran. That much was clear. She could not see her way to trusting a man of such inconstant loyalties, least of all one whose penchant for losing at cards was so well and widely known. No, he would have to be dealt with, and quickly, though perhaps not by her personally. She would give the task to one of her girls, perhaps Kitty Winter. Cradling the heavy glass against her breast, Irene Adler smiled to herself. Yes, Kitty would do the job nicely. Kitty, who was as clever and vicious as she was waifishly pretty. She would make short work of the poor, dim-witted colonel, or indeed any man who was fool enough to cross her. Kitty would make for a good assassin, so far as one might be required. Irene was sure that one would be, if only at first. There were many in London's criminal classes who would not take well to being ruled over by a woman. Well, let them try to resist, as they wished. She would make quick work of them, just as she had the good doctor. 
She stood beneath the wide window, staring out at the sprawling city. The city that had once belonged to Holmes, and would, before long, belong to her. The thought of it made her grin as she lifted the bourbon once more to her lips. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Not So True Crime. Music for today's show was composed by Daniel Birch, Franz Gordon, John Alger, Martin Clem, Damon Green, Peter Sandberg, Christoph Gorman, Fabian Tell, and George Friedrich Handel. If you want to listen to more of their music, you can find links to it in the description of this show. If you like the show and want to help other people find it, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get of both, the more people can listen to this show. You can also email us at notsotruecrime at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at notsotruecrime and jvisklosky. We'll be back soon with another original story. Until then, I'm John Visklosky. Thanks for listening.